Hello and welcome to the Department of Building Inspections Brown Bag Lunch. Um, since tomorrow is the 102nd anniversary of the great 1906 earthquake, uh, it seemed appropriate that we should be talking today about earthquakes. And we're going to be talking about both the issues that make us particularly vulnerable in San Francisco, and we're going to be talking about the policy issues that should and do guide San Francisco both in our earthquake response and hopefully in our next earthquake recovery. And we have a few experts joining us today. Pat Buskovich, who's a structural engineer and a guy who's probably looked at more earthquake damaged buildings and earthquake repair buildings and unreinforced brick building upgrades. In San Francisco. In San Francisco yes. than anybody. And, and he has his earthquake dog with him, Harvey. Harvey? Harv. You're on. The earthquake dog, Harvey. That's Thank you. And John Paxson, who's a real estate advisor, a member of the uh, CAPS uh, Advisory Council, in fact, the vice chair. And CAPS, we'll be talking about a little bit today, is the Community Action Plan for Seismic Safety, which is a program sponsored by the Department of Building Inspection to look at what are the significant impacts of an earthquake in San Francisco and how can we mitigate those impacts so that we meet the goals that we all want to meet. And one of the things we want to talk about today are what are the goals? What are your reasonable expectations? What do you expect to happen after an earthquake? Because um, people have diff very differing goals about what they expect. A lot of people say, for example, their expectation is I live in a house. The city wouldn't let me live in a house that wasn't safe, would they? And uh, so I'll be perfectly fine after a big earthquake. I live in a brand new house, and it's absolutely fine, and it's earthquake-proof. Those are actually unreasonable expectations, and we'll talk about why those are. Um, there's, for example, nothing that's earthquake-proof, really. And even if, even if the building doesn't have any structural damage or even any non-structural damage, there's always stuff inside that sloshes around and falls over and damages and there are lifeline connections, telephone, sewer, water, that get damaged that make habitability a problem. Okay, now, San Francisco's earthquake hazard is composed of a whole uh, overlay series of items, the first of which is our location proximate to the two major faults, which by now you're all well aware of, the San Andreas Fault, which runs right offshore of San Francisco. It passes into the ocean in Daly City, and is about how far offshore at the southern edge of the city? Maybe a mile. A mile. So it's very, very proximate to the city and runs up to Marin, where it uh, creates Tamales Bay, which is actually the, the fault, the earthquake fault. Is a million years of earthquake movement created that rift and land on the other side. That used to be in Southern California. Right. <laughs> and it's an active fault, as we all know. And the other fault is the Hayward Fault, which you have been reading about recently because geologists and geotechnical engineers and other people say this is a fault that is more likely even than the San Andreas Fault to uh, have some slippage in the near future. And the Hayward Fault runs right up through the East Bay, right through some of the most densely populated areas of the East Bay, right through the University of California and heads on Memorial up Stadium. Right through, actually, through Memorial Stadium, I understand. And you can, you can, you can actually you see can the offset because one site's moving relative to the other. Mm -hmm. right. And uh, downtown San Francisco, the heart of San Francisco, and on your monitors you can see the ferry building, this is basically between, almost exactly between the Hayward Fault and the San Andreas Fault. 
So whichever one of those faults tends to move, this is going to get significant impacts from that. So San Francisco is severely impacted by both of those faults. Although if you live in the Richmond district and the Hayward fault goes off, you probably won't feel dramatically large earthquake. If you live in the Richmond and the San Andreas goes off, uh, you won't be able to stand. It will be so pronounced. Around 50% of gravity is the shaking. Okay, so what you're saying is that the, clo is that the closer you are to the fault, the yes. greater you are yes. going That's to feel why it. it's good to be in the middle of the two faults, but if you're on one extreme and that fault goes off, the shaking will be pronounced. And to give you an idea, how many people were in San Francisco in 89? Okay. And no, anyone in the marina in 89? Okay. So if you were in the main portion of San Francisco in 89, the ground acceleration was 9% of gravity. That was about the average. If you weigh 100 pounds, which I don't, but if you do, <laughs> the ground pushed you with an inertia of nine pounds, which is like me bumping into somebody. If the Hayward Fault goes off, most of San Francisco will feel 20 to 25 percent. The marina, which shook at 25 percent in 89, will shake at probably about 30 percent. South of Market will probably shake at about 35 percent. So if the Hayward Fault goes off, San Francisco will shake three to four times harder than it did in 89 and will shake twice as long. Pat, not if. When the Hayward yes. Fault goes yeah. off. Yeah. The, the Hayward Fault has a return cycle of once every 140 years, plus or minus 10 for the last seven for 140 years. And the last slip was in 1868. So we are exactly 140 years since the last time the Hayward Fault went off. <clears throat> And there's a 10-year window on the downside. We've already had the 10-year window on the front side. So I would say it would be pretty unlikely that the Hayward Fault won't slip within the next 10 years. And that will give you ground shaking of three to four times what you felt in 89 and twice as long. Depending on the location that you're at. And, um, we have... Pat and I and a couple of other people have run a few of these programs about how you can prepare in your home and in your life for the displacement and problems related to an earthquake. That's not specifically what our discussion is today. It's sort of a more global policy uh, issue. So one of the issues is proximity to the fault. So how, how certain are geotechnical engineers and other persons that the actual proximity to the fault is, in fact, going to affect how strong the ground motion is? Everybody always says if you're close to the fault, it shakes more. I mean, does a mile make a difference? Does five miles make a difference? Is this, well, there, is this a theory? It came out particularly in Kobe. They determined after the Kobe earthquake, uh, and you were actually there. I was so. there in Kobe at the time of the Kobe and earthquake. How far did it shake? Well, the roof came off of the building I was in. It was hard to stand up. It was, in, And I was about six, seven miles away. In the city, people couldn't stand up. They, they, they have determined they after Kobe using accelerometers, which measures the ground shaking, and we've got accelerometers all throughout the city, that if you're within 10 kilometers of the fault, which we are, uh, both faults, uh, then you will have something called near-field effect. And the easiest way to explain it, it's like standing next to a railroad track, and as the train comes by you, the train gets louder and louder because the sound waves of the train start tumbling over themselves as the, I think this, 
as the, the train makes sound, it generates. As it gets closer, it makes sound, and the sound waves tumble. The same thing happens with an earthquake. The earthquake are ground waves, and if you're very close to it, those ground waves tumble upon themselves and accentuate or increase the loudness or increase the intensity of shaking. It's called near-field effect. Um, we probably won't get near-field effect on the Hayward Fault. We will have near-field effect on the San Andreas. A lot of the Sunset and Richmond District are going to have very, very pronounced ground shaking. We also, though, have another interaction because of poor soils that interact with certain types of earthquake waves. And you can actually have a moderately distant earthquake and the ground shaking will be higher in the bay fill areas of San Francisco. And people don't realize how much of the city has been filled in, but there's a tremendous amount of city has been filled in. And in those areas, the ground will shake dramatically harder. So there's a lot of interaction that plays into the level of intensity. I want to show you this map that was actually adopted by the state of California uh, a few years ago after a study in San Francisco of the um, areas that are potentially liquefiable. And what that simply means is that they are wet areas or fill areas that amplify the earthquake forces. And, and they actually do liquefy. You can actually have the ground turn to liquid, like quicksand. Okay, so if we look at this map, you can see um, there are green areas along the edge. Pat, can you see this okay? And there are uh, blue areas. And just so you can understand, the blue areas are potential landslide, earthquake-induced landslide areas. That's a different issue, but we do have potential earthquake-induced landslide in the city. And then all of these greenish areas are areas that are potentially liquefiable. Not only do they potentially liquefy, but they also amplify the ground shaking. So yes. if Pat says you're going to have, you know, to point, you know, 9G, you could actually have substantial amplification of that in these areas. The yes. stuff starts to move and it actually... And if you overlay this with, like, this map down here, which is a partial map from about 18... Okay. let's take a look at this. This is a fascinating old map from the 1800s. And, and it, shows, it shows what San Francisco looked like before a lot of it was filled. So this is the Mission District. The marsh from Mission Bay went all the way up to 7th and Mission. That's how big the marsh is. Uh, the bay went all the way up to Montgomery Street. And at Montgomery and Jackson, there was a small little water inlet. So all this is bay. All this is bay. All this is Bay. So you see these city streets out here, and this is just a small section of the city. This has all been filled. Okay, so if you look now at this map that was recently adopted by the state as their liquefaction hazard map, an earthquake hazard map, you will see that's what these green areas are. This enormous mission area is all liquefiable. And this is kind of an interesting thing, tidbit. Most people don't realize uh, there was a creek that flowed out of a lake in the mission, the lake was three city blocks large. The center of the lake was at 17th and Valencia. And if you go, there's a plaque out there. It's hard to find showing the size of the lake. But you could sail a boat up the creek that flowed out into the bay into the lake at 7th and Mission and go sailing in the lake. It was that big. 
And that land was so valuable because everyone wanted to live east of Twin Peaks because the weather was bad, or better here, warm. So they filled in as much land on this side of the city as they possibly could. Um, and then they were forced to start building on the other side of Twin Peaks where the weather, where I grew up, it wasn't as nice as is east of Twin Peaks. Yeah, I live in the inner sunset. The weather's not anywhere near as good as it is in the Mission. Yes. Okay. And in 1906, in the big earthquake, that area in the Mission had dramatic effects where it had been filled. In uh, the buildings settled, one building, in fact, settled all the way down, I understand, into the lake bed. Well, uh, the largest loss of life in one place was the 17th and Valencia Hotel. It collapsed, crushed a bunch of people. Then the fire department came in, tried to put the fire out, drowned the people who had gone down into the basement because it lost the story. And then the fire came and killed a bunch more people. Across the street, there was a three-story building. And after the earthquake, the first floor went straight down. Didn't crush. It just liquefied and went down and created a full-story basement. And you could walk down one story into the basement. The building just went kabush. We have seismic proximity to the earthquake. We have unusual topo- uh, uh, soil, conditions. soil conditions. And then on top of that, we have the built environment. We have buildings that are built of all sorts of different materials, construction types, and dates. And um, when you put those three things together, what you have are some buildings, like might, maybe you're sitting on rock areas that are built very solidly that will have very, very little impacts of earthquakes. And you have other buildings that are on a fill area that are soft story buildings we'll talk about in a minute that are very fragile buildings. And people have essentially the same expectation. I'm living in the city. I'm living in an old wooden building. And, uh, and, and what was that thing? And the building department would come knock on my door and tell me if my building was dangerous. Yeah, people tell me, you wouldn't let me stay in a hazardous building, would you? But the fact is that a building under the building code only needs to meet the code that was in effect at the time that it was built. There are very few retroactive laws. There's one for brick building upgrade that says that you have to make brick buildings safer. Oh, that you have to reduce the risk of life loss. That doesn't mean lots of people won't die in these brick okay, buildings. Okay, so the brick building standard is a very low standard, but frankly, the, it was to prevent what we might call catastrophic, catastrophic. collapse. The brick buildings, and we have about 1,800 1800 brick buildings in San Francisco, most of them have now been upgraded to a standard that will prevent catastrophic collapse of the building. They're not going to prevent the walls from falling out. They're not going to keep the buildings usable. It's the lowest possible standard. And they might need to be torn down after the major earthquake, right. some of them. Right. So, by the way, this is Lori Johnson, who's joined us. Lori is an earthquake risk analyst, and she's done a lot of work on reconstruction, earthquake reconstruction, especially in Kobe and also in the New Orleans post-Katrina disaster. She's worked on that. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And Lori also is, you're going to be uh, attending some of those CAPS uh, meetings as well, I hope. I'm on the advisory committee. Excellent. Good. So here we have San Francisco, variety of buildings. Most of San Francisco is densely built but not very tall. And there we have in the background the many built, taller buildings. So what is the relationship of hazard? What the ratio of hazards between large buildings and the typical San Francisco low-rise buildings? Most, most large buildings are structural steel frame buildings and they as a group do very well in an earthquake. 
There is a class of mid-rise buildings that were very popular in the 50s and 60s, uh, which are non-ductile concrete frame buildings. There's a lot of apartment buildings. They're about 10 or 15 stories tall. They, as a class, are probably one of the worst classes of buildings that you could possibly be in. So those mid-rise buildings. And how many of those would you? There's about there are. 500 of them in San Francisco, plus or minus 100 or 200. And we know that they're hazardous because in other earthquakes in other locations, we have seen how they perform. For example, in Mexico City. They looked like sacks of pancakes going down for miles because they built. they were cheaper buildings to build in Mexico, so they built row after row after row of these non-ductile concrete buildings. And Mexico City, just so you know, is built around an island in the middle and then a big lake, and they filled it in, just like San Francisco. And they built these buildings, and the earthquake came, and they all pancaked down because the floors were stacked like this, dropped, and went boom, 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 and it looked like a stack of pancakes. And then, yeah. Compared to the older concrete buildings and the um, sort of masonry infills, summer steels, well, you, combos you, of the 1920s, 30s. You may have a slightly better performance because those buildings were designed for heavy industrial loading. So they'll have more reinforcing in them. They had a tendency of using round columns in those older industrial buildings with spiral hoop. So they don't necessarily catastrophically collapse, but you literally will... will um, crack the slab as the buildings move. So in a perverse sense, the 50s and 60 buildings probably are not the buildings you want to be in. There are some steel frame buildings from the 20s and 30s. I'm in a 1927 steel frame building. I'd be in that building in any earthquake. Well, I wanted to clarify for the audience because we have so many beautiful, very ornate buildings that are larger, taller than a four-story building. A lot of the apartment houses in Russian Hill, um, out in Pacific Heights, and those, many of those are built earlier than the 1950s. They're the ones that you're talking about that might perform better. Well, they, those are actually probably mostly steel frame buildings. Yep. And a class steel frame buildings do very well. But in the 50s and 60s, they wanted to create very open uh, floor plates for lots of view. And they went to this concrete frame construction. And they thought it was a great design until the 1971 San Fernando earthquake knocked down a brand new hospital that was slated to open the following week and the earthquake came and the building disappeared. And they said, oops, and changed the code immediately. So usually the building codes are retrospective. Something happens, we look at it and say, oh my God, it didn't do what we thought or the public expects a better performance and then the codes change. The codes are rarely prospective, looking at how do we want things to happen and trying to figure out how can we can make that happen? They're, they're, they wait for a catastrophe and then change. Um, they respond to a catastrophe and they go, oops. Well, just to clarify, I mean, part of the reason is that earthquakes are so rare. So we don't have, and we also don't have instrumentation or have had instrumentation to record the shaking of those earthquakes. So to go and do a computer simulation to anticipate how a building would respond to an earthquake is difficult to do if you don't have the data to input to try to model it. So that's one of the challenges and why codes tend to be retrospective because we only learn once we have an event and every event is different. You know, not all events, the few records that we had um, aren't exactly indicative of how every other earthquake shaking event will be like. 
So uh, we have recently amended the building code to require that new buildings have earthquake instruments in them so we can record the motion of the building and we can record the base data of how much the earth has moved and then we can compare and understand what the performance of the building is like. That's terrific. Not very many existing buildings are instrumented, so one of our things uh, that we're going to be looking at at the CAPS program is to instrument existing buildings so that in a moderate earthquake, we will have some understanding of how the buildings are going to perform because we need data, otherwise we're speculating. We can look at other earthquakes that have occurred. The Kobe earthquake had many buildings of similar construction type in San Francisco, and it had uh, similar types of faults that we have here. And so we, there are a lot of uh, similarities. But the, there is something to be important of. I mean, of the type of construction, there are debate about how they will perform. There is a very good record on soil conditions. We know how the soil conditions will affect the building. And so if you're on a poor soil condition, we can pretty much tell you your building's performance, no matter how good your building is, is going to be so predominated by the soil condition. There are some types of buildings that engineers can go, and you can get three engineers, and if you put three engineers in a room, you usually will get five opinions. But there are some buildings that three engineers can go out and look at, and we can all agree there isn't a chance in hell this building will survive. And there's a large population of those buildings throughout the city that there is no reasonable belief. Matter of fact, we would be shocked if the buildings stood up in a, in a major earthquake, significant earthquake. Yes. So we look at earthquakes, and I think we need to talk about this for a second because there are the earthquakes that are, you know, common in garden. Every you know few years we get a little shaking, you know, and then we have the um, design earthquakes that we use when we think about what is the reasonable earthquake that we might have on a recurring basis, and then we have the maximum possible earthquake that we might have, which is like the 1906 earthquake. It's a 500-year return cycle. So the um, most buildings in San Francisco are designed to what standard, would you say, Pat? What Nothing, because most buildings in San... Well, no, I take it back. <laughs> most wood frame buildings probably pre-existed before a code required them to have anything done to them. Which is in the early 70s? Is well, they, they, they had some prescriptive requirements in the 50s and 60s. We don't really consider a modern building code until probably about 1973. Uh, major buildings, like the building I'm in, was designed by a genius in 1927, and that building is way ahead of the time. So. Larger buildings will have been designed most likely better because they required an engineer. Smaller buildings, you didn't need an engineer on all of them. So basically what I always have been saying is that if your building is built before the early 70s, it is likely to have some earthquake uh, resistance and resilience because of just the nature of construction. But it wasn't typically specifically designed as an earthquake uh, with any kind of earthquake resistance. Well, most system. of the, the Sunstream homes... So, as in this photograph here, these are, these are just tracked homes, mostly built as spec homes, built by carpenters and contractors who built it the way they always built. And so they have a degree of earthquake resistance from that typical construction. And they have a tendency, if there's zero lot line, they pound together, and the buildings in the middle survive because the earthquake isn't long enough, but the poor individual happens to be at the end of the block is like the book at the end of the shelf. They fall over, then the next one falls over. And so that's exactly what happened in 89. In the, the marina, we saw a lot of the corner buildings actually collapse or get badly damaged. That's right. John, you had a comment? There are two ways we can look at earthquakes. I think each one of us wants to know 
how our house, our where we live, is going to perform. But I think we also need to take a look at how the city is going to perform. And uh, Pat makes a good point that most of the newer buildings are going to perform better. Uh, keep in mind that uh, the studies that we've done certainly show that most of the most vulnerable buildings are going to be the residential buildings. Half of the residential units in San Francisco were built before World War, uh, World War II. And so we have a very old housing stock. We have the, the oldest housing stock uh, this side of the Mississippi. And, and that's where our problems are most likely to be. I want to, go, I want to pass the microphone around and ask people how they expect their home to perform in an earthquake. I've, I've never asked this question. I think it would be really interesting to anybody who wants to share. Um, no, no, okay, here. Tell us, what, do, what kind of building? Do you live in a wood frame building? Yes, uh -huh. Okay. Yes. And after a major earthquake, do you think you can be in your building and you'll be okay? I What's your expectation? I'm afraid the, 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 from last year's earthquake class, you mentioned that the house might pop to the street because oh. my garage is empty. Ah, so she has a soft story building. It's a big open garage, and so she's reasonably concerned about that. Is it in the middle of a block of wood frame building? In the middle of the block. Okay, they're, they have less hazard in the middle of the block, fortunately. I think that at least that's our expectation. We're still trying to do some research that shows that. Sir, what kind of building do you live in? I also live in an apartment building with ground floor parking. Okay, and uh, hang on to that microphone. You live in an apartment building with ground floor parking um, in the middle of the block on a corner? On a corner. On a corner. And so does it have parking on one side or both sides of the – are there openings on both sides of the building or just the – Yes, there are openings on both sides. Okay. It's a wood frame building. Well, it seems to be a hybrid uh -huh. with concrete and steel on the bottom level, which includes the parking area, uh -huh. and then wood frame on top of that. Okay. We don't often see that. We usually see one or the other. But modern buildings often do have a concrete podium and then wood What neighborhood are you in, too? Uh, Dol Dolores Park area. Okay. So you're probably not, I mean, if you go down a couple more blocks of Valencia, you'll hit the lake. If you're in the Dolores Park area, you're probably on reasonable soil conditions. I live in Diamond Street, so we're pretty good soil conditions there. So what is your expectation of what your building is going to be like or your life after a major earthquake? Are you going to be able to stay there, do you think? Uh, I'm really not sure, and that's, that's my concern. I see. And the, this gentleman is correct. His concern is his building. You have to look at this building by building. You have to almost look at it block by block because we've looked at this map, and you can see that the uh, edges of the liquefaction zone or the fill areas vary block by block. In fact, it's not all on here. Let me point out, for example, in Coal Valley, there was an old pond. And in fact, there was an amusement park with a flume with a big trolley that came down the slide into the pond. That pond was subsequently filled in and they built houses on it. That is a potential liquefaction site, very small. Laguna Honda drains down 7th Avenue in the inner sunset. Two blocks on each side of that forms an earthquake hazard liquefaction zone. So the exact location that you're at has a lot of bearing on how your building might perform. So we have to look at the There's soil. Other areas that just are fascinating. Uh, West Portal, when they dug the tunnel for West Portal, there was a creek that flowed all the way down into Sigmundstern Grove into 
think it's called Pig Lake. I think that's what the Spanish called it. And there was a very deep ravine right next to West Porta Boulevard just downhill. They filled in the ravine with the tunnel muck because they had to dump the uh, spoils from the tunnel and they filled in the ravine and then they built houses on it. It doesn't show up on maps. The creek's still there. It's about 40 feet down underneath about 40 feet of muck. Uh, the other area is really interesting. Down 18th Street was a creek. It comes from Eureka. Uh, and if you go up into some of those streets near uh, the city's health center, there's a street there called Pond, P-O-N-D. It's not a coincidence it's called Pond. Okay, so part of what we're going to be trying to do over the next couple of years, I think, is update this map and give as much detail as we can looking at historical data and try and say, you know, there are, in fact, more significant small item, uh, areas. Micro uh, geotechnical Mi conditions. Zones, that's right. So how do you know if your individual lot is? There are a couple of points related to that. One is that while these lines are very clearly defined at the boundaries, they don't actually mean this is the exact edge. You know, you can be a one side or the other side. It's not like okay here and not okay, you know, 10 feet away. It's not quite. Uh, but on the other hand, we have taken this map, which was uh, published by the state, and digitized it so that if any portion of your property lies within one of these zones, we can tell you. If you tell me what your address or parcel number is, I can tell you whether or not you lie in There's a book. He's got a secret book. And I'll tell you our phone number. Call. We'll look it up when you call. It's 558-6205. And the clerk or me or someone will take the book and look it up and say, yes, you lie within some particular zone. Or you can come to our office here at the building department and look it up. What, what's your expectation? I'm the manager of a large condominium project on Knob Hill, 19 stories. It was built in 1963. It's steel and concrete. And right. There's a difference between structural steel, which is steel columns, and rebar are surrounded by concrete. So can you see big steel columns? It's steel columns, okay. thank goodness. Okay. And, uh, yes, that is a thank goodness. 19 stories. And then I live across the street in a building that was built, I believe, in 1920. And I brought my staff here because we want to, as a team, be prepared for our building and the owners that live there. Okay. So her question is, Mr. Structural Engineer well, and other people, how can someone find out what they should be prepared for? What is the likely first uh, thing condition is to, of this building? First thing is to get a, see if there are original plans for your building. Well, they, are they to do that, or should they hire somebody well, to do this? this is what should be done. Someone needs to verify that you are a structural steel frame. There's a couple ways to do that. You can do a permit search, and for large buildings like that, there's a high likelihood there will be an original permit and maybe original plans. If you are a steel frame building, you have one class of concerns. If you're a non-ductal concrete frame building, you've got a big, big other set of concerns. You want to make sure what side you're on. So the first thing, and I recommend everybody do this for earthquake reasons or any reason, get a complete set of documents for your building from the building department and the assessor's office and every other office in the city and put them in a notebook and then you have all your documents. So here in the building department on the first floor, you can ask at the microfilm desk to get all the permits, all the plans, all the job cards, all the sign-off sheets, all the special inspection reports, get everything. 
There's no reason why the city should be the only source for that stuff. Get it, keep it at home, have it, and then if you ever want to do a building expansion, addition, remodel, you have the documents, or you want to have it analyzed by an engineer or an architect, you can have that done as well. So I, I recommend everybody do that. You, you said something about getting plans for your building. Um, but what if you're in one of the 50% that were built a long time ago? I've got a 1903 four-story duplex. Okay. This gentleman has a 1903 building. Most of the plans and permits for pre-1906 buildings in San Francisco were destroyed in the fire, except for the larger buildings. So um, many of the plans for larger buildings are still available in the Bancroft Library in Berkeley and other places. But most of those were destroyed in the 1906 earthquake and fire. However, we still have a complete record of all the permits that have been issued since 1906. I, I pulled the permits. It's pretty spotty. Okay, so there's not back. much there. Yeah. You can also go back and get original water department connection records from the water department, and they actually have the pre-06 records because they saved them and trucked them out of the out no, of the no. area. Actually, the story is oh, okay. the city it. had two water companies that were privately owned, Spring Valley, and I can't think of the other one. Spring Valley eventually acquired the other one. Their headquarters was down at Crystal Springs. The Fioli Mansion, people know about the Fioli oh, Mansion? That was actually the CEO of Spring Valley. He wanted to build his house on the lake, and they said, no, build it there. Their stuff was held outside of the city. Um, after the 06 earthquake, one of the reports by the city was, and all the fire hydrants were off of domestic water, so all the fire hydrants were tied to Spring Valley. The city said, this is crazy. We need to have our own water supply, our own fire hydrant, and they actually put in a second auxiliary water supply, and they municipalized Spring Valley and created San Francisco Water Department in the teams. So all those records were transferred from Crystal Springs outside of the city to the water department. It used to be on Mason Street, and now they're actually at 1155 Market. You can walk in there, and they'll pull out something. I've seen it all the way back to 1868. They have the water hookup. It'll be about 37 cents to hook your water, but that was it. And they're, they're all intact. Well, and I'll, fo I'll follow up with uh, uh, on your question as well that the cost of having a structural engineer take a look at your building is a very, very small percentage of the building's value. And I think whether uh, we, we have a large condominium association, single family house, a duplex, that the, your building is, is static in that it's building uh, construction type and the type of soil you're, you're sitting on and uh, certain types of deteriorations that, that would be obvious to Pat but might not be obvious to you are, are things that aren't likely to change or change very fast and that once you have that inspection done, Believe me, you're going to sleep much better knowing what you have, and you can then make rational decisions on, uh, or known decisions on how you might want to approach it. Prioritize. But there Did you have a, he had a follow-up question? No, I, I, mean, I totally agree with you. I don't think the plans are a substitute for having a professional look at it, but the plans are part of the history. So would I be able to get them at 1155 no, Market? All I have is the actual water hookup and the date that your building was officially um, legalized. So they won't be plans. But if it's an apartment building, most competent structural engineer is going to look at the outside of the building, know intuitively where you are in the soil conditions, and be able to give you a pretty good expectation of the performance 
it, interesting, most wood frame buildings do pretty well on the second, third, and fourth floor. It's that lowest level that gets whacked. And that's what happened in uh, 89. Uh, the upper stories act as a rigid block because they have all the interior walls of all the little individual rooms. But the garage level is usually an open floor plate. And so in kind of a very perverse logic, the total drift of a building, an earthquake, is, is a thing that you can actually look it up on a ground shaking intensity without paying too much attention to the actual building. But if the building is very stiff, that total drift, instead of being uniformly distributed from story to story to story, which makes your building perform well, can all be forced down to that lowest story. And it's almost like you're, you're standing there and someone knocks your knees out and you fall down. That's what can happen to soft story buildings. Lori talked about the difference between structural damage and non-structural damage and other issues. And I think a lot of us don't pay enough attention to the non-structural damage issues. Non-structural damage can be all sorts of things. So here we are in this room. Non-structural damage might be the ceiling, damage to the ceiling, the lighting, the... Uh, the sprinklers the, can be really ugly. The uh, walling, the sprinklers. Yeah, what if the seal? So here's a little story. In the 1989 earthquake, the Loma Prieta earthquake, the, that was the day that the new Marriott Hotel opened, right? And um, the new Marriott Hotel has that a little bar up at the very top with a view of the city. Up at the top of the building, they, the building swayed back and forth, and the ceiling plane shaved off a sprinkler head. And that sprinkler head went off and flooded the top floors of the Marriott Hotel, which was otherwise un entirely undamaged. Well, and it's a, big, it's a big problem. In Northridge, it was a huge problem. Lots of buildings had very little damage structurally, but had sprinkler damage and were in internally, you know, tremendous losses because then you get all of your sheetrock gets wet, everything has to be gutted, you get your carpeting wet. I mean, it's like having a flood. We're on a, on a group right now that's trying to look at all the, the issues of, of, of earthquake risk here in San Francisco and make some recommendations. And, um, you know, there's the structure and then whether it responds and performs well in the shaking, but the subsequent issue is fire, which we haven't talked about here. Um, and, and with fire goes, uh, one of the major causes of fire will be gas line breaks and water line breaks not being able to, to actually um, protect the structure once it happens. So, um, all those things, all those utility things sort of come into play. And as a homeowners association, I think one thing, even if the building performs well and you don't get knocked down by fire, I think you have to anticipate as a resident of San Francisco that there's going to be a lot of ground deformation and we're going to lose a lot of our, our utility performance. Electricity may come back sooner, but we all saw with the recent windstorms that a lot of the Bay Area was out for a long period of time. And while PG&E has done a tremendous job of, of upgrading uh, the electrical system. We still have the gas system, which is underground, which is going to have a lot of breaks in it, and the water system and our sewer systems, which are going to have breaks. So you may be able to camp in your apartment, but I think you have to look at being prepared to do that. It would be like if you went away for a long camping trip. You know, so think about how you would be able to take care of yourself and be able to, what we hope, is shelter in place that will be able to change the, the, the thinking about where people go. One of the big issues in Katrina, as we all saw, is that people had to, were forced to evacuate. And if we had a large fire here in San Francisco, we might have to force an evacuation of all of our residents, and then getting people back in becomes very complex. So one of the things that we're thinking about in terms of shared expectations, which we are trying to develop, is 
perhaps this concept of shelter in place is an expectation that we can all come to agree. This is our bottom line expectation for building performance is that your building, while it might not be undamaged, will be sufficient for you to be able to camp out in, stay right. in place, so you don't have to go to a, some Well, Lawrence, I don't think we're quite there yet. No, um, we're not. No. But we're I, trying, I, that's the kind of uh, well, expectation. We're and and I think we should pass this along to the audience that some of us feel that there should be some design standards. And there's a discussion of, of what should our design standards be for new construction, for, for existing construction. And all of us have expectations that our buildings are going to perform well. Uh, and the building department, uh, we on CAPS, are going to say, what standards should those be? And there's a, a group of us that have come up with a concept that hasn't been universally adopted of uh, at some point in the future, and this might be 15, 20, 25 years out, where our retrofits and our, and our uh, uh, renovations uh, are implemented at that point. It's not going to happen within the next week, but where uh, occupants of buildings, 95% of the population of San Francisco can expect to, what we say, shelter in place within 12 hours following an earthquake. And that's what a group of us are feeling that we should be, design, be designing towards. And there are, there's a lot of issues, there's a lot of risks, who's going to get the benefit, who's going to be paying the cost. And these issues are certainly details of what, of what we're on the committee trying to, to figure out and address. As a general contractor, I see so many of those 100-year-old buildings are beautifully done, four-story tall, and they have brick foundation or inadequate foundation, minimum amount of concrete, if any. Everything is done with stainless steel and granite and everything. But the next door neighbor could soar up and redo their foundation brand new, but they are still vulnerable because your next to a guy could fall on you any given second. I understand on commercial buildings we have the UMB regulations that in certain amount of time you have to do that reinforcement. Otherwise, the city will come in and take over and do the buildings, right? Am I correct? If someone fails to upgrade their unreinforced masonry building, we would make them do it or okay. somehow, so yeah. Mm -hmm. What about residential? When you well, have sir, a monster yeah. four-story tall next to you, what are you going to do? There is no specific retroactive requirement for these residential wood frame buildings. There is no retroactive requirement at all. And, you know, I, I think I might take issue with the hazard created by uh, living next door to an unreinforced wood frame building. Yeah, so my client yeah. could spend, make your money to hire a structural engineer and a contractor like us to redo the foundation, show up the building, put up shear wall, everything. But you have a monster, four-story tall, 100, 100 years old. It's on brick, four bricks. You can be at a risk that if you're next to a very tall building and you're a low building, that risk, that building can give you hazard. You can also be on the other extreme. You can have a brick foundation in an old building. And I'd tell you to leave the brick foundation in place. You may be doing more harm taking it out. And the performance of your building is going to be predicated by something way down the food chain than the brick foundation. Um, but there, I was, and I would also say that just because your building survived the 1906 earthquake, because a lot of people said, oh, I survived 89. And I go, it wasn't a big earthquake. Then I hear, well, the building was built in 1889. Well, not be, that's nice that you survived the 1906 earthquake. There are a lot of large buildings that did. There's a lot of buildings that didn't. We've offered and talked to our 
insurance agent. He said, if it's a serious one come up, we will not have enough fund to pay for everybody in the area, period. That has so, to do with the California Earthquake Authority, CEA, is not funded by the state, so the amount of money that they have in reserves is generally based on maybe a 20 or 30 year return cycle. They haven't had 20 or 30 years to accumulate the reserves to pay off our large Our event. buildings are 80 or 90 years old, and we were going to buy the insurance, but our agents say, look, we will merely pay you $100 per square foot, which is 100 120,000 per building, but if that shall fall down, I know our company's reserve won't be able to pay out every client that we insure. Well, that, that's what happened in 89. So it doesn't make any sense if that day shall come if it's big enough. That's why I, we choose not to purchase. Well, there are, there are a lot of Obviously, things. There are a lot of things that come into play with that. Um, the the when you pay a premium, you're paying into a reserve if you're part of the CEA. So the CEA builds up its reserve by the amount of people who take the cover. So they can't build up the reserve otherwise. I mean, that's how they're building their reserve. Um, as an example, it's a slightly different structure, but the National Flood Insurance Program is an example of another public insurance pool. Um, and so what that, the same thing is true there. They didn't have enough in their pool, in, enough, in their reserves, to pay out all the claims after Hurricane Katrina. But in that case, Congress had to pass legislation to authorize the replenishment. And that's essentially how these pools are set up, is that government is now involved in being part of the, the additional cover, the additional funding that would have to come. Now, the, I'm not specific on how that works in California with the CEA, but, but part of being in a pool is to allow government, part of the reason states are setting up these kinds of pools is so that government is the insurer of last resort, as opposed to a company that goes bankrupt and you get nothing. If you speak to three structural engineers, you get five opinions. So how do we as a homeowners or renters or whatever know who is a sound structural engineer? That's, a, that's an interesting well, point. Well, how about my answer since I'm not an engineer? <laughs> and and you have some, uh, take some comfort in the fact that we, there's a large, we in San Francisco have the largest community of, of experts in San in, uh seismic activity uh, and structural engineer of anywhere in the world, I think. Uh, we also have a lot of concerned citizens that aren't earthquake, that aren't engineers, that are asking some of the uh, 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 questions like, like you're asking. And I think the, the essential questions on how your building is going to do, there's going to be uh, a lot of consensus on any group of engineers on how your your building is likely to perform. I think in terms of getting on the margins of the issues, the uh, uh, percentage of, of damage your building might have, or uh, some of the more specific issues in terms of repair, there might be some disagreement on that. But I think that there's the uh, uh, science and the art are to the point now that, that for the big questions, the big answers, there's going to be a lot of consensus on that. So I wouldn't, I, I, I'd take comfort in that. And I, I agree with that too. I, yeah, I don't I see a lot the engineers, of engineers. I think it was a joke. Um, <laughs> engineers talking about themselves, but um, you know, I think most of our buildings are not that difficult to assess. So, you know, people will be able to point out the 90% of the issues with your structure with pretty clear consensus. Maybe there will be some differences on exactly, you know, some, some details like the brick foundations are kind of unique. There are some things that some people would see that are unique, but I think 
you know, you, you should have comfort if, he's, if, if the person is a registered structural engineer. Uh, there's, I don't know if the registered structural engineers are on, do you have them on your website? The Association of Bay Area Governments has uh, a website, it's abag.gov. ABAG, Association of Bay Area Governments. And if you go there to the earthquake section, then in, within the earthquake section, there's actually some information about retrofitting wood structures um, and a list of contractors who, who can provide you um, the service of doing most retrofits. A lot of these are for the single family houses down on the peninsula the, with the cripple wall. Uh, but, but, but then I think there are engineers listed there too. I might be wrong. I know the contractors are listed there, but it's a great resource. And the association staff went through and looked at all of those individuals who are listed there. So that's an accredited pool of contractors. If you're a contractor, you might want to get in there. It's a great source of, um, you know, free advertising. Right. I, I have to say that I, in San Francisco, unlike the East Bay or the Peninsula, we have so many difficult buildings. These are not, you know, just one. These are all one-off buildings, and typically it requires an engineer and architect to look at the building and not just a help prioritize how you're going to do it and exactly how should it be done, rather than just, just going standard details that you can pull out and have a contractor right. do it. Yeah. So, so I said that with a caveat, that right. what that really is for is the single-family residential cripple wall 1920s, 30s house. Right. Yes, I'm a contractor, and I find in the public there's a lot of confusion about retrofitting and what that means and could you talk about the generally accepted standards of strengthening um, retrofitting means a great many things to a great many people and I think people need to understand that there are generally accepted standards to which you can strengthen a building too and uh, could you talk about that for a minute basically there's this a spectrum of potential uh, uh, building performance, all the way from the buildings that were built in, you know, 1886, however, whatever their performance might be, to the buildings not just that meet today's code, but that meet what the state of the art is or what the future code might be. And so we have this enormous range of potential performance of buildings. And so somebody says, I meet, to, I meet the code. The question is, what code? Do you meet the code that was in effect in 1908? or the 1930 or 1974, or do you meet the 2007 California Building Code or the proposed 2009, right? So there's this huge wide spectrum. Now, San Francisco has made a determination that the upgrade for existing buildings and retrofit should be, if you wish to say I have a retrofitted building, should meet 75% of the current 2007, year, code. 2007 code. Okay, 75%. We say that's we're going to call that the collapse prevention standard. You can pretty basically. much stay in your house. It's going to be badly damaged, but you can at least stay there at 75%. So if you get a permit that says you know seismic retrofit, it will be referencing this standard. It used to be 104F 3403. And it's 75% of the current code. Okay, but, but it's a real wide range. But, and then when you look at the brick buildings. That didn't even meet that if you use the, you know, special procedures. You, you could yeah. find a, a different standard for brick buildings and a different standard for each type of building construction. And then there are buildings that have been retrofitted to 104F in the 70s. And as a group, we now say, well, maybe they're not really deserving of being called 104F buildings. And then there's a whole series of voluntary retrofits that you can do. 
And if you are a licensed structural engineer, you can give people some ideas on the performance objective of if you retrofit the garage, you can probably stay in the upper floors. Or if you retrofit the garage in the upper second and third floor, you can probably stay in the building. And, and then it becomes an art. And that's when you really want to be talking to a structural engineer who's been doing this because it's not all mathematics and science. Some of the worst buildings that we have in San Francisco are 1970 high-rise buildings when we finally came out with computers and we were able to accurately model something down to seven significant figures and we designed buildings down to that level of accuracy not knowing that we didn't even know what we were doing. So it, it is an art and you want to talk to someone who does this for a living. A couple final comments if I may and that is first of all one of the most valuable things a structural engineer can do for you is help you prioritize. Here's where you should be spending your money first, right? And then the other thing, and Pat and I have both looked at hundreds of earthquake damage buildings, maybe thousands, and the smallest amount of work you do has an enormous return. So 89, there was a building. In Marina, they built opposite hand buildings. Their front door is side by side. And I went into one building, had no damage, not a lick. And the building next to it, identical building, same soil condition, same shaking, trashed. The difference was the guy on the house that had no damage had put in anchor bolts. Hadn't done anything else. Hadn't blocked the cripple walls. Hadn't done a whole other thing. But just the fact that he put in the anchor bolts, he was staying there that night in his building, and the other person wasn't going to be there for months. And I've seen the same thing with just two sheets of plywood up in the garage. That's all it took. I wanted to mention a couple of things, and we'll look at a few slides. Um, typical San Francisco buildings, uh, many buildings, we have a huge variety of buildings. We have things up on the hillside on posts. We have things that are in the middle of the mid-block, uh, held up by their adjoining buildings. So no matter how lousy this building is, it's held up by its adjoining it buildings. It can't fall down. There's no the place for it to go. So if you live in the mid-block, we have corner, soft-story buildings. And I think we have almost all generally agreed at this point that wood frame soft-story buildings where you have Open areas of either parking, glass. parking or glass pose a substantial hazard. They have very few interior partitions, unlike the upper floors, which have a lot of them. And so this is a, a serious hazard. Not only do we potentially lose a building, but we lose the neighborhood-serving grocery store and so on. These, are, these have a potential for an enormous impact in San Francisco. So we're definitely going to be looking at how do we reduce that. Here's, here's another example of that. We have these huge variety of building types like this thing that's held up with toothpicks. I don't know what, I don't really, how does it stay up with wind load? You know? We have all sorts of things that uh, are marginal, both from maintenance and uh, original design. And speaking of non-structural items, I guess a chimney would be considered non-structural, maybe. Um, we have a lot of chimneys. Chimneys, even in the smallest earthquake, chimneys are a significant hazard. So I encourage everyone to think about how you can brace your chimney because they can go right down through the roof or out onto the sidewalk. And we don't want to have people being in these little earthquake shacks in after the next earthquake. We don't have any plan. We actually don't have a plan yet. We don't have a housing plan. What we're going to do for housing after the earthquake. So being able to stay in your own house is probably... We know we don't want to be in formaldehyde trailers. That's right. So. That's right.
Um, yeah, I, I want to use this word plan and just I, I don't want to cut off John, so I'll just say real quickly. Um, I think, you know, one of the things we do in our life when we, we plan for our retirement, you sit down and you think about all your assets and you think about sort of, you know, social security and where that fits in and your children who might take care of you and, and, and any, you know, 401k or any other retirement things that you have. You have to look at the earthquake issue the same way. And you need to make a plan for your family. And you need to think about those things that you want to have access to. And you need to think about things like backing up your hard drive, having, having your family who's on the East Coast have copies of uh, valuable documents so that they're not lost. Um, and also this issue of, of risk. You know, how much risk do you want to retain? Don't invest in, in retrofitting, you know, to the deluxe standard for your house if, if you financially don't want need that you know if you financially don't have that kind of investment in that structure then it may not be necessary for you so it's sort of take a take a financial view of the situation a little bit take a more holistic view of of where you are and think about those issues and more is there anybody who can help people do that well there's it is a tough thing it hasn't been done yet the american red cross does have a plan kit for a family planning kit you can get online um, at redcross.com org I think it is or just Google the, the American Red Cross and they have planning kits for your family a lot of that is like contact information making sure that you, you, there's a central point of contact um, for you guys back for every family back somewhere else and everyone knows who that is so you know in my case it's my family on the East Coast um, you won't be able to call your kids on their cell phone. Someone, yeah, and, and one of the things that we do know about when, when big disasters happen is all of the systems get flooded, and eventually cell towers are going to go down. They're not backed up. Um, but they have a limited life. So even if you're able to recharge uh, your, your cell phone, um, it might be that the system goes down or it's just overwhelmed. But texting is something that is quite possible to do. People during 9-11 were able to text and communicate. People in, during Katrina were able to text and communicate. So having a central point of contact that you could text out and say, I'm okay, and that person can receive all that information and be trained to do that. You know, so your grandmother may not be the person, unless she's a really cool grandmother, <laughs> to do that. No offense, grandmas. But, um, but, you know, just think about it from that point of view. It's like think a little bit more holistically like you do when you sort of think about the future, um, what it's like to live. Imagine living in a disaster for several weeks and what are some of the things you need. Well, thank you all very much for coming today, and uh, we hope this has enlightened you and helped us. Thank you very much. See you next, next month.